0: I was in the field working. I think I was 23. So-called expert on the machine, right, because I was the technician leading that particular part of the install. made a choice to go into the machine and defeat the lockout-tagout because I saw something I needed corrected. knew when I made that decision it wasn't the right decision, but you get comfortable, you do those things. When I went into the machine, I was working in a part of the machine while I was operating, watching it. It was, you know, making toilet paper at the time. I don't know exactly what caught my hand. I think it was the sleeve, but ultimately pulled my hand in the machine. Now these machines run about 3,000 feet a minute and so I got caught into the machine right up to about here on my wrist and at that point uh, the machine, thank God, kicked into like an e-stop mode so I was able to at least not be killed because right above that are the blades that
1: perforate toilet paper which would have taken my life. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging.
2: And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company.
1: We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. We've got a great story of a guy who has quite a bit of drive. He's got quite a competitive nature, really has created something special.
2: I thought I was competitive, Gene. (laughs) Like, I thought I had a competitive drive, and then I just, hearing him talk uh, about his perspective on leadership and the way he runs this company made me want to run through a wall for him.
1: <laughs> so we're really super excited that you agreed to do this. Jeff Polini, president of Fosper America, fellow Italian. So uh, this will probably be the first and last full Italian dais on this podcast because there's just very few of us in this industry unless we start recruiting some of your countrymen from your years of service.
2: From afar, the last 10 years or so, I admired you at the ICC meetings. First and foremost, you always have a smile on your face, a bounce in your step, and something valuable to say when you're moderating or when you're leading these meetings. And then as we started talking to him and digging into his story, there's an edge there's a competitive edge to this man that uh, there's no question why he's been successful and I'm excited to dig into it. But pe- I think before we get started, we have D'Angelo in the room, we have Marino in the room, Pelini in the room, and we have Morelli in the room. This wouldn't be complete if we didn't start the show with a box of commodities. I agree. <laughs> that is awesome. I went on a walk yesterday, Mr. Pellini.
1: Look at that! Look at you! Oh man! So at eight
2: o'clock in the morning, it's let's start the show the with a box here. of
1: cannolis. And the good news is, is that they've only been sitting under the hot lamp for about a half hour <laughs> while we try to get things warmed up here.
2: And cheers, boys! Cheers. <laughs> As we get started, Jeff, I, I, you know, a lot of us know you um, from Fosber. So I think before we start really digging into your story and who you are and what you're all about and how you became who you are, maybe a two-minute commercial, just a little bit about Fosbro. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me,
0: first of all. And it's fun to be one of the one of the Dagos in the room here. Are we allowed to say that? <laughs> we'll <see>. So <laughs> We'll find out, huh? Um, Fosbro America, it's a company out of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, we basically make corrugators for the U.S. and Canada. We've been in business for about 35 years. We are an Italian-owned company, so our parent company is out of Lucca, Italy, but the uh, North American operation is out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, as far as the manufacturing location, service parts, et cetera. We also have a corrugated roll company there called Tyrunia, which is a Spanish company located in uh, Pamplona, where the running of the bulls is. Very cool place to visit. And then we have a recently acquired company in 2019. Funny story, maybe we'll get to it later, but we bought a company in December of 2019 called the Quantum in Milan, Italy, and of course then the pandemic hit, started in Milan pretty much. And we didn't get to see it till a year and a half after we owned it. But uh, now we own them as well, and that's another niche corrugator um, that we now offer. So that's basically our product line. And then, you know, our, our focus, as I hope we'll get into somewhat today, is, is really extreme service model to try and take care of the customers in this market. We're in northeast Wisconsin. We have just a, a great access to, to wonderful people. It's a, it's a good location to be in manufacturing, a lot of supporting cast up there. So we're very blessed. Um, we're, like many people in our industry, really busy right now. Very excited. I uh, have some of the same challenges you all have, but look forward to talking about that today.
2: Yeah, I think yeah, to your point, I think one thing I noticed in our pre-screening calls with you and any Zoom call I've been on with you over the last two years is the the note behind your desk that says commitment to the customer to work harder than anyone else in the industry to make our customer happy. Correct. And, yeah. and in your intro, touching on that, I'm excited to dig into how you got to that point. And, and, and really hear your story on leadership because, like I said, in our pre-screening call, some of these things that you've talked about are just incredible. What a culture you've built. Well, thank you. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, you grew up in Pittsburgh, and you ended up going to school and moving to Italy just on a whim, yeah. and that's how yeah. you got your start, correct? Exactly.
0: Yeah, I went to school in Clarion University in, uh, outside of Pittsburgh, actually Erie, Pennsylvania, and then when I graduated, I had a business degree and a psychology degree and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. A good buddy of mine, uh, worked for a company called Perini, which is an Italian company located in Lucca, Italy. And they were looking for technicians. And I kind of put myself through college as an auto mechanic. That's how I helped pay for a lot of my schooling. So I thought I'd give it a try because quite frankly living in Italy just sounded amazing and the opportunity to um, go into an industry that I didn't know anything about. And I figured I'd never end up in Green Bay, but we'll get to that later. As I did.
2: But you so, grew up Italian and the, that, up, that what drew you to, to Italy it itself? Did, did it, you speak the language growing up?
0: I didn't speak the language. My grandfather did. Uh, no one in the home actually did speak. I, I lived in an area that was uh, a lot of Italian uh, rich culture so very much an Italian area but um, I did not speak it but that was that was a big draw for sure. So I took the opportunity right out of college to move to Italy and uh, when I was there I was an apprentice on the production floor learning how to build machinery, service machinery, more on the mechanical side. And um, it was just a great experience. And of course, while I was there, I learned to speak Italian. I went for one month. I went to school in Florence just for the language. And then the remaining period there I was there about a year was you know, working and traveling with the technicians and, and learning the business on well, the
1: machine side. You talk about learning how to build the equipment. What was their sweet spot?
0: So Perini is a company that makes uh, tissue uh, machines, basically toilet paper, household towel, those types of machines. And uh, they had an operation in the US in Green Bay. And their focus was, was selling to the large, you know, the Proctors and Gamble's of the Georgia-Pacifics of the world for tissue winders.
1: Is that why they needed
0: American technicians right. for, for growth in that market? Their business model was, like many European models, the, the manufacturing and all of the decision-making and so forth was all out of Europe, and they would just ship to the U.S., and then there would be technicians like myself that would help install that equipment. But there was really no autonomy there. It was a, it was a business model based on European manufacturing and European control. And uh, so that's why I was hired, is to be one of the techs that worked out of Green Bay to ultimately travel.
2: You were what, 23, 24? Yeah, right out of cold, yeah. On the plane across the pond. I and mean, what's, your, what's your mindset at that moment? Are you nervous, scared? What was your goal? To, were you just going to enjoy Europe for a year and see where your life took I you? I think
0: it was maybe the latter. I, I definitely wasn't ready to go to work. I didn't know what I wanted to do with, uh, with my graduation at that point. Um, so when I had this opportunity, I thought I could live in Italy for a year, all expenses paid, Making six bucks an hour ah. couldn't wait. Come on. My dad wasn't now. real happy with me He couldn't believe I went to four years of college and accepted a technician position for six bucks an hour But it was more about the journey of getting a chance to broaden my horizon because when you're young at that point You know, you can make that kind of decision and if it doesn't go well,
2: you can rebound from it So I felt it was the time to take some risks Did you see yourself at some point running a company and building a company? I did not I
0: grew up pretty humble beginnings. My father was a school teacher. My mom was a bookkeeper at a uh, car garage where I did some work and uh, I always wanted to continue to grow and raise a family and be happy. I, would, I did not have, at that point, aspirations to own or run a business. Like a lot of people, I just kept taking the next step, doing the next thing, and it evolved, and I got, uh, got lucky, I guess. Did you have siblings growing up? I did. I had two sisters, I had an older sister and a younger sister. One still lives back in Pittsburgh, the other one's in North Carolina.
2: And you were a football player. What I thought was interesting when we were talking in our pre, pre-meeting, the, the competitive edge that came out in you. Uh, in our discussions about how you run your business today. Has that always been there, or how, did football play a role in the, the competitive nature and the competitive person that you are? I
0: think sports as a whole did. My father, as I mentioned already, was a high school teacher, but he was also a football coach, and I always played sports. Um, like many of us Italians, I was a little undersized, a little slower than I should have been, but I loved whatever sport I was playing, and I did my best to, con- you know, to contribute as much as possible. So sports have definitely taught me uh, teamwork and built the competitive nature that I now have, uh, for sure and that ultimately I did some coaching with, with the kids and so forth, and that continues to come out now in my workplace. I do believe in a team environment. I do believe very much in creating an environment where people can excel, uh, make it inviting, very family-oriented, but at the end of the day, we wanna win. We absolutely wanna win. That's our goal. Anything short of that is not success, and we strive for that. We don't always win, but that is absolutely the goal out of the gates.
1: So let, let's go back to, I think you told us that you and Tina, your your wife, but at the time, your girlfriend, um, same same year in school in college? No, nope, one year younger. She, she was one year. She behind. was one year younger, and you basically say, "Hey, I'm going to go goof off in Italy for a year. I'll be back later." Is that uh, were you guys pretty serious? Were you not? We were pretty serious, yeah. and that was an interesting
0: conversation because she's going to spend her senior year while I'm overseas. And back then, obviously, you had no cell phones, couldn't call because it was too expensive. So you would basically just write letters in airmail and they're about a month behind. So anything <laughs> you wrote, it was a month later she'd get it, and vice versa. So that went on for a whole year. So she's a real trooper for hanging in there with me. So uh, we both blanked that year out. We did our best yeah. to keep it going. Read
1: our letters, and uh, and then rejoined later when I got back back to the states. So you, uh, so you, you kind of hammer through this year, at Florence. Are you on the weekends? Are you just bouncing around Italy and doing some traveling? And every weekend, I had a yeah. Panda forty-five, um,
0: which means it was port 0.45 liter. That was the size of the engine, <laughs> pretty much like a Briggs and Stratton lawnmower. <laughs> But with four wheels on it. And they gave me that as my car, and every weekend I did exactly what you said. You know, you're in Italy. You got one shot at this. I would go skiing one weekend. I'd go visit some city another, go to the beach, and sleep in the car. So I spent most weekends in a car uh, visiting
2: and trying to make the most out of that year. It was was amazing. Were there moments when you were there, like, wondering what the hell did you get yourself into? Or were you just (laughs) loving? Really? Most of them, because, you know, you're away from family.
0: You don't speak the language. Um, On one hand, you're really experiencing some amazing things. On the other hand, you don't know where this is leading. You know, you're making six bucks an hour. You're learning how to put machinery (laughs) together.
1: Uh, Eventually this is gonna come to an end. Where is this going? Sleeping in the car. Sleeping in the car. So this year starts wrapping up and uh, it's time to come back to the States. Are they giving you some pretty good marching orders or are they basically saying, report to the Green Bay office on Monday when you get back to the U.S. and and, uh, we'll have have some uh, uh, direction
0: for you? So basically, after about a year, I was not supposed to come back permanently, but there was a big job for uh, in upper state New York at a Crown Zeller Bach plant, which is, then became James River and so on. For anybody who's familiar with um, that area north of Albany, it's called Glens Falls, New York, is where I ultimately I was sent. And it was for a big install. It would take about three months. And about two and a half months into that is when I had my accident. And so what was going to be a return back to Italy, continue some more training and then return you know, resulted in me staying in the U.S. at that point to, to deal with the accident. Yeah. So
2: then so, let's dive into it. So let me tell
0: you about the accident, because I think it's an important story to hear. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, anybody listening, I do testimonials, I go to plants, but I, I'm interested in talking to the people on the floor. So one of the things I really enjoy doing in my own time, uh, and I do it in industries also outside of Corrugated, is just talk to the folks on the floor and remind them, you know, that they're responsible for their own safety, that they're in control of, of making sure they go home to their family at the end of the day. So I talk to a lot of plants about that and, and uh, tell them my story. and. In, in very, very brief, my story is I was in the field working, so-called expert on, in, on the machine, right? Because I was the technician leading that particular part of the install. Made a choice to go into the machine and defeat the lockout tagout because I saw something I needed corrected. Knew when I made that decision it wasn't the right decision, but you get comfortable, you do those things. When I went into the machine, like you hear a lot of people, you know, a loose sleeve or a piece of jewelry or something like that gets caught. I was working in a part of the machine while I was operating, watching it. It was, you know, making toilet paper at the time. I don't know exactly what caught my hand. I think it was the sleeve, but ultimately pulled my hand in the machine. Now these machines run about 3,000 feet a minute. Again, they're creating toilet paper rolls. And so I got caught into the machine right up to about here on my, uh, my wrist. And at that point, uh, the machine, thank God, kicked into like an e-stop uh, mode. So I was able to at least not be killed because right above that are the blades that perforate toilet paper, which would have taken my life. But I was blessed that that didn't occur. So another technician was there on site. He came over and spent the next hour while he, you know, the, the uh, medics came and so forth disassembling the machine and getting me out. And while I was in there for that hour, honestly, I don't recall a lot of pain. I recall a lot of focus on getting out of there. I recall focus on my family, you know, praying, anything that you know, would get me through that hour. But the moment they release your hand and you see it, you know, that's, that's when uh, all hell breaks loose. How old were you?
2: 23. Jeez, man.
1: So... Um so the e-stop triggers and the, the technician is there helping. Uh, I assume uh, fire department paramedics show up. Did they think that disassembling the machine was the way to, to way way to do this, or what We was
0: contemplated that? amputation as the first rule, but that was they weren't sure of the damage level because you couldn't see the hand. So they ultimately decided to disassemble the machine because it was pinched. So it was barely bleeding, so the disassembly seemed to be the way to go, which that, it ultimately was. And that how wide were those rolls that so the, the gap going between there at that point is the thickness of uh, toilet paper toilet, two oh and toilet paper God. I think we were making uh, great northern at, at that time but then it opens up to about a half inch to allow like you know anything to go through there like a you know web of paper or something of that nature
1: so just wide enough for the hand to get through so they get uh, they get you out obviously um, you know I don't know how how detailed but but you now have to go emergency room and you had said six months of rehab rehabilitation, recovery tell us some just a little bit about about what they had to do so
0: basically i had a degloving which which means when i pulled my hand out all that was there was a skeleton all the muscle the skin was completely gone and so the rest of the rehab or or uh, all of the operations were centered around trying to get you know somewhat of a functional hand so i have a lot of reconstructive surgery a lot of skin grafting Uh, my thumb is actually the toe for my right foot you know, my vertical jump was about 10 inches before this accident, so <laughs> so it's down to about three inches right now. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I've been blessed throughout my life of always being around people that helped me get through tough times. This all occurred in Pittsburgh at the uh, Presbyterian Hospital. Amazing journey there to meet all the surgeons and nurses that helped me through that process. For whatever reason, I was on the floor of the kidney transplants, because that happened to be the specialty at that hospital. So all of my roommates were on dialysis and were there for kidney transplants, which means A hand's nothing, right? This man, woman, young child, whatever, is trying to get through and survive, and I'm just trying to maybe get some fingers back. So it was really a a great opportunity to put things in perspective and get through that six-month period. Met a lot of cool people that I still stay in touch with.
2: Maybe in the days afterwards, as you were in the hospital, what was your mindset like at that moment? Was it, oh, it was me, or was it, No, I mean, like
0: most 23-year-old guys, right? I was into working out and looking
2: good and and all the things that I had
0: planned down the road. So your first... I think thought is you know what, what you look like physically and where this is gonna go in regards to your ability to do things. But pretty quickly they put you into a variety of types of um, therapies, occupational therapy is one of them, and, and you pretty quickly learned that you're gonna be just fine, you can figure it out. I moved, I moved on, it's gonna take more in the hand to hold me back, mm. so I said,
2: bring it on. Yeah. Do you still look back? or do you, How often do you think about that day?
0: Well, it was yesterday, April 25th, 37 years ago. So mm. every April 25th I definitely remember it wow Uh, my mom calls me every april 25th morning and says please be careful today yeah so so uh but not that often i honestly um i've grown up with i've been one-handed a lot longer than i was two-handed so yeah not something i think a lot about
1: so let's um obviously it's it it plays a big factor into how you manage and lead and and i think we'll we'll touch on that a, a little bit later but now you're you're recovered you've gone through rehabilitation and now it's time to go back to work right and uh, you go back to Perini in the States and and what do they what do they tell you, you you're no longer a technician can't
0: be a tech I well, apparently I wasn't a very good technician with two <laughs> hands so it was, it was kind of one of those things like well now we can actually use the skills so they moved me into service on the phones I was pretty good at that and, and with customers so then they moved me into sales and I just kind of worked up and within a couple of years I was you know uh, running the the base operation of the pre-america group reporting to the president in, in a primarily in a sales role,
1: president um, of Perini America or Perini Perini. Perini you America. Know, it's, it's I was not to keep track of I all know, the, the I way know. they the way they like to do. I, we the...
0: make it sound big, but I think we were ten people. At that
1: time, <laughs> so. But I was reporting to the president of Perini America. Okay. I was working for him and and uh, basically running the sales group at that point. Okay. And now they come and say, "Hey, we're we're interested in kind of doing a market exploration study."
0: Exactly. That's the Fosper story. So to get to corgate and how I got there. Thank you for listening to all that, that, that story up till this point. <laughs> Um, this is where it gets really fun. So they come to me and say, "We bought this company called Fosper in Italy. It's a small little company. They make uh, down stackers and slitter scores. So they're in the corrugate industry, and we think there might be an opportunity to also have this product in the U.S. If you have a business degree. Would you do a market study, check it out, and come back and let us know what you think?" And they literally gave me three months off, and I traveled with the owner that uh, of Fosper, previous owner that they bought from. His name was Bertani. So if you look at the word Fosper, it's two Italian names: it's Fazalusa and Bertani and Mr. Bertani was the one to travel with me. Um, and ultimately, uh, we, we visited uh, competitors, we visited box makers, we visited uh, associations, probably talked to you guys in some capacity, tried to learn about the industry, the size of the industry, who the competitors were, You know what would help us to be successful. And after about three months, put together a nice market study, brought it back to the board, presented it, and the board said, we wanna go with this and we'd like you to open up the operation in the US
2: and how old are you at this point i'm gonna say 25 26 26 (laughs) years old and they're asking you to just run the show in the states that's some confidence they had they hadn't clearly they saw something in you too i don't think they had a better option but
1: (laughs) (laughs) well he did do the study so we probably should at least give him a try they probably figured you'd last about three months and i originally wasn't interested in it
0: because you know at that point perini was doing really well and i was in a good place with perini and it was it was a low-risk job and i wanted to start a family with my wife so but just something draws you to that because you think first of all i you know i did this study i know what potential it has but most importantly i could create a culture that i actually believe in something that isn't the european model something that is the model i believe can really be successful and that's
2: why I did it. And so, you knew that at
0: 26 years old, you knew where you were like with that. I knew way. I didn't like relying on the Europeans uh, to make decisions. I wanted to look a customer in the eyes and, and be able to give them the correct answer at that moment in time. I didn't want to have to wait seven hours ahead, call and get back to them.
1: I knew at that moment that we could do better. So you're the first employee of FOSPR America. Yes. Basically. And and so I'm assuming a, a Not pretty, the most famous, just pretty, the first. A pretty, we all fancy, pretty fancy office in uh, in Green Bay, kind of, kind of I don't know, 30th floor kind of deal? You're, you're ready to get rolling? Well, first
0: of all, there's nothing 30 floors high in Green Bay. I mean, the stadium, I think, is the tallest in Green Bay. No, I actually rented from a buddy who had a machine shop. There were three of us, and I had uh, some cinder blocks and a 4x8 sheet of plywood. That Perfect. Was, that was my desk, and, and but I was
2: rarely there, so. And with Perini, you walked away from a nice office and, a, and I did. security to I did. have a cinder block desk with plywood. Yes. That's incredible.
0: But it was, so. it was, you know, it was for all the right reasons. Um, it was something that we knew was going to be, and my wife was very supportive. We knew that it may not work out, but we also knew that if it did, it would be something that uh, really could be uh, our future long-term and also something that was that we believed in, that
1: we could create the culture. So let's just, one, one small step back. So this three-month study basically finds the results of... The results are
0: we're a dry-in company, right? We at that time made stackers and slitters, um, and not very good ones, but we, we had that was our product. <laughs> And in the U.S. at that time, Markup was a very, very dominant player. Um, exceptional company run by Carl uh, Marschke and Dick Thomas, um, great two great men. And 85% market share, or roughly where they're at, is a difficult thing to maintain. I mean, 5%, 10% of the people buy from you just because they want an alternative, just to see what else is out there. So we felt like with that uh, market position, we had a chance to come in. And then the key was what to come in with. So we tried to come in with a really low-cost, simple machine that was... Uh, for low-end plants. We didn't try to start, you know, beyond who we were. We knew what our capabilities were So so that's what we determined
1: to do and that's what we came out of the gates with So so you're you're off to the races and now you're selling something I mean, is there is there anything made in in Italy that that like if you land an order Are you calling the shop saying hey uh, pull out some drawings and start? Uh, how's that all? taking dual purposes at the same time taking place.
0: Right, so what we decided from the very beginning, the agreement I had uh, with the ownership of Phosphor was that in the US we would be able to determine what the bill of material was and exactly where the machine would be built and we would completely service it. In other words, we were their customer. We'd buy from them what we want and we would do the rest ourselves. Mm. And ultimately what we have d- we determined back then and still do today was at least all of the electronics, you know, all the electrical panels, um, all the software, any documentation the customer would see or touch would all be done by us, so it'd be very American. Um, what we get from the Italians, because through economies of scale and just their innovation, because the Italians are generally mechanically very innovative people, we would use that portion from them. And that's how we started, you know, a first machine came out with the mechanical part from Italy and the electrical software part from us out of uh, Green Bay. And who was that for? So the first order, um, I'm sure some of your listeners will remember him, uh, Philip Goldstein in Acorn Box down in uh, Chicago, was the first customer of Fosper.
1: How, how long after you started, do you, do you land that first order?
0: I'm gonna say it was about six months. We had a product, impressive. We're, we're traveling around with a, a one-page brochure, I'm thinking a, video, a VH tape of some <laughs> machine running in Italy. <laughs> Philip gave us a chance and, um, and shortly thereafter, uh, maybe they were friends, I, I suspect they were, uh, um, Jordan Nornberg, who owned Royal Box, gave us a chance. So we had two orders within the first year in Chicago which was, you know, exceptional for us to be able to show those machines off. I, at that point, I thought, this is going to be a really easy industry. Wow, I mean, just
1: these orders just flow. So you're, you're nine, nine months in, you have, you have two customers. Have you, are you starting to hire people? Is, is Fosber America starting to grow? It, it is.
0: We're still in a rental building. There's still three or four main employees. Um, our first employee hired was Paul Robeski. I didn't know the Corgate industry. I understood the machinery side. I felt like I understood sales. I spoke Italian so I could work with them but I definitely did not know anything about Corgate. And Paul had a corrugated background with Green Bay Packaging then he ran a sheep plant and he applied and, and accepted a position with us in an all hats role, right? It was a sales <laughs> role, but ultimately he was helping install machinery and doing everything. So he was our first employee and uh, and we've, we've made this journey together. He's def- definitely a big
2: part of the success. And well, what's he mean to you at, at this point in your career and, and and how much has he helped you over the years?
0: I mean, we're equals in everything. We, we tried to, I mean, <laughs> We joke. He works the second and third shift. I work the first shift. We're very different, which is probably why we work so well together. And, and ultimately, we're able to, um, you know, grow the business from the, the sales perspective. Then we began adding a lot of really smart people on the manufacturing and the engineering side to help us, you know, build the panels and whatever else was required. And the technician side, of course. I think our third employee was actually a technician. Um, Steve Lodel was his name. So began, like many companies, starting to add the support where we needed, and back then it was available. Northeast Wisconsin is very rich in talent in the machinery and and paper industry. There's a lot of paper mills there, a lot of machinery manufacturers there, a lot of um, bearing houses and so forth, so you can find people,
2: and still to this day, with all the labor issues that maybe we'll touch on at some point, it's still pretty rich with uh, a lot of talent. And, and the story is you hired the technician without any equipment without in the market from, yet. Because <laughs> of the business model, right? You have to walk the walk. You can't talk about extreme service and your commitment to this customer. You can't
0: paint on your wall. We're going to work hard on anybody in the industry to make the customer happy without actually doing it. So when the customer says, how do you plan to service my equipment, Philip Goldstein, you have to say, meet Stu Lodo, our
1: first technician. So you that, that's a really kind of dance on something that's rolling around in my head. So, in that three-month study, or maybe once you once you started to sell your first couple pieces of equipment, was the extreme service model a part of what you were hearing in the market uh, in that time that you were doing that study, or is that something that you created, or was that something that was born out of the Perini model? Like, How did that resonate with you, where it became really something that you were going to focus on? Great,
0: great question. So I attribute that to my dad. So my dad was a school teacher, but in the summer we did roofing and siding and Uh, cement work and so forth he probably made more money in the three months in the summer than he did teaching for the other nine months but he had an extreme service model i mean we would go into the summer maybe with one job we'd we'd be working on a certain street doing roofing and his commitment to that customer the hours we would sit and talk to them where i'd be rolling my eyes like why are we spending so much time on this and before you know it everybody on the street had something they needed done and we'd never leave that street we'd end up working the whole summer doing work for people because they would hear how awesome my dad was in this how how well he took care of them and how he would help them, you know, figure their way through these different uh, issues on what they wanted to do. And I don't know, I just thought that could work in any environment. And corrugated, especially with the independents, it absolutely works. In this market, look at the Philip Goldstein, Jordan Norberg story. That's what happened. Philip, I'm sure, talked to him at some point and said, found this. You know, a little Italian dude over here that's,
1: that's got a pretty good thing going. You should give him a try. Climbing up and down a piece of equipment in <laughs> my plant. It's yep, gotta, exactly. It's got to be worth something. <laughs> yeah. So I,
0: I attribute that to my father because he was very committed to the customer. And uh, regardless of, of price, and we were never thinking about the next order, we were thinking about finishing that job. And it seemed like at the end of the job, the next order was there. And so we kind
2: of went that approach early on. And as you started to grow those first two orders came in in that six to nine month period when was that that's got to be 1990 91 somewhere so that before range. you had kids you had been you're married to tina though at that point
0: yeah we exactly we were married in 86 and uh, my daughter was born in 92 so yeah
2: kids. and those times during when you'd made that jump into that position it was a risk the cinder block desk was it a, was it a grind when you got that first order was it like oh boy we made it or is there a moment where you said okay this is this is this is where it's going to be this is my this is my this is my path forward right
0: when we separated from Perini when the when the ownership group of Perini and Fosper separated and I had to make a choice which way to go that's when it became a grind because like I'm sure many of the people you're going to interview you, you know you don't you, you don't sleep at night because you worry about making payroll taking care of people paying your vendors taking care of your family that's where the grind was so until we were you know, into three, four million in sales, and we're able to start to take advantage of the installed base. Because in capital equipment, you don't make a lot on the initial sales. Selling machinery is not lucrative. The lucrative part is taking care of that customer for the next 20 years, making sure you have parts, service, maintenance, upgrades.
1: So bust that out a little bit. Um, studies done. You're in in uh, you're in Green Bay. You are closing some business, and and Perini and Fosber decide they're ne- they're going to separate. Correct. That, and 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 and. How long into your new venture are you when that decision comes, and maybe just kind of talk about this this
0: split? Right. So Perini was owned by a gentleman named Mr. Perini, a very successful gentleman, and he had four managers that reported him from the beginning, and also and they were running Fosper. He had put them in charge of Fosper, and then I don't know all the details of why, but they chose to split as two entities, which meant the American operation had to also split up. At the time, I was vice president of sales uh, and operations for Prini and I was also doing the Fosper thing and uh, had to make a decision which way to go. And and honestly, it was an easy decision because Fosper represented everything I believed in. It was small, wasn't profitable yet, but it had some rock stars working there and and it had ultimately I think a vision that I just aligned myself with very closely. And Perini was a very successful company, but it was no risk. It was no fun. You're already on a winning team. I want to create my own winning team. That's when we made the separation. I'm going to say that's 1990. Uh, we remained in Perini's building for a very short period of time and then made the you know, complete separation. When do you take international paper to Italy? So our first, I'll call it big sale, which would lead to repeat sales. So we started with the independents. They gave us a chance, and we were able to keep that theme always. But we know that in our industry, 75, it's probably even higher now, the box plants or corrugators anyway are controlled by the integrateds, major integrateds. And IP was uh, one of the largest at that time. They weren't necessarily the largest back then. They've obviously since become that. And in uh, 1991, I believe it was, it could have been 92, they approached us and they're interested in, in Chicago at, nor- at the North Lake facility, to put in the first phosphor shear slitter. They had heard good things about the ones in, uh, uh, in uh, both Acorn and, and Royal. So we take some of the engineering group to Italy,
1: have a lot. big, fun trip. Yeah, um, yeah. It's you and Paul. Yeah. You guys have been together quite a while, and, 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 and something transpires on that trip that, that I found sort of fascinating. And so yeah. you take IP <laughs> over to Italy, yep. you and Rubeski and uh, we're
0: you're, stand- you're entertaining them. We're entertaining them. We come back from dinner. Uh, we're in a city called Viredo, which is along the sea, and the IP guys go to bed. We bump into some of the old Perini guys, which were friends, but they were kind of jawing at us pretty good about how small we were and you know how well they were doing, and these guys used to report to me. So we decided to, I will call it more wrestle than fist fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, both of them are over six foot, and Paul
1: and I, you know, we sh- stretched her at 5'8", and uh, yeah, we both dominated, it was pretty fun. That's great, that's great. So you, you got a little bit of a competitive streak, so now- um, At midnight
0: with some beer and me, when you <laughs> make fun of us, oh you bet you I did.
1: <laughs> it's incredible. So, um, so you're, you're starting to hit a bit of a stride here. Uh, the business has been separated. You've decided to stay with Phosphor. You're, you're growing. A lot of it's word of mouth. You're, you're making your way into, into the integrated side of the, the business. Talk about this growth, this acceleration, and your responsibilities now. You've been selling you're preaching the good word, and you're going to start expanding your product line, you're adding people. How do you keep focused not only on this vision, how are you communicating it to your people? How are you How are you finding and attracting good talent?
0: Well, I think one of the key elements that at, at that point of the growth of Phosphor, we're about three, four million in sales at that point. And we were sitting with the owners in Italy talking about how we could grow quicker, what was holding us back. And I said, I can't speak to your market, but in the U.S. market, we are a small Italian company. The Italian manufacturers before us have not had a great reputation. People are a little nervous to try because, are you gonna be here five years from now? You're gonna have obsolete equipment, et cetera. So we have to do something to um, be able to access more of the big companies at that point, people like Weyerhaeuser and Willamette and so many of these large corporations that really did not wanna talk with us because we were too small and too much of a risk. You know, when you sell an independent, it's so different than selling to an integrated. An independent is entrepreneurial, they get to know you, it's relationship selling, it's their money. Uh, and you take it and they take it very seriously. When you're selling to an integrated, it's typically an engineer who just wants to keep his job. He not want, doesn't want to make a bad decision. If he makes a safe decision, he keeps his job. If he t- takes a stretch and it doesn't work out, it could put him at risk. So we, were, we weren't doing uh, very well with the big companies and that's when I approached the ownership group and said we really need to find an American partner. Someone who does the wet end, because we didn't have the wet end, we only have the dry end, and someone who has a good reputation and can help us learn this market and have access to uh, you know the larger companies. But ultimately, United and Carl Landiger, who was the owner at that time, is the company that we chose to try and team up with. They needed our dry end, we needed their wet end. And so after some negotiations, they bought 50% of Phosphor
1: America. What year was that? 92. And, and just for um, our, our moms listen, um, just kind of give us 30 seconds on wet end and dry end for those that, that don't really get our industry.
0: Sure. So the corrugator is ultimately taking three sheets of paper and combining them into a sheet that will be ultimately converted into a box. The corrugator is what creates those sheets. The wet end is the part that is taking the three sheets of paper and applying steam and glue and bringing them together. The dry end is slicing and dicing it, right? It's it's slitting it to width. It's putting scoring in it. It's cutting it to length and it's stacking it. So literally one end of it does not have any glue or steam involved. It's very dry and the other end is very wet. And we kind of divide that even though it's one machine. That's kind of the center point
1: of that machine. Perfect. So now United owns 50%, Fosper America owns 50%. Are, are these guys now collectively coming together with you in the room, talking about how what your go-to-market strategy is, and is it going to change or shift at all?
0: Absolutely. At that point, uh, United was located in Glen Arms, uh, Maryland. Still it, they still are. And they had talked about relocating us out there, because I think at this point we're 15 or 20 people and 3 or 4 million in sales. But we really believed our identity and the way we did things was important, so we asked them to... Bear with us for a couple of years and see how it went. And honestly, it took off. the The ability to say we were party united, use their sales team, uh, use their big shoulders to get access to big companies, took us very quickly to thirty million. I remember the ramp. It's it was one hell of a ride uh, to to grow that quickly and hire people and try to maintain the extreme service model. It's one thing to grow. It's another
1: thing to do it while comm- you know staying committed to that business model, which we were very committed to. And how much um, because you. Uh You were able to convince united to let you stay in green bay are are you really leading uh, that team in green bay and and responsible really for keeping everybody aligned and focused on the vision
0: i was uh, but i also traveled extensively you know not only to italy but obviously with the sales team i traveled pretty much every week and so i had uh, a couple of people back in the office that really i think held the fort and did an amazing job Um, some of them still there today so so it allowed me to be front and center because that's where i really enjoy you know, yeah. I, I belong like many people to a lot of manufacturing associations and I always get the question, why do you travel so much? And I say because the customers don't live in Green Bay. I mean that ultimately when you're in front of the customer, that's when you're learning.
1: Yeah, I wanna so, so we're we're taking you down the business road, but I know that, you know, for a lot of listeners and, and obviously Joe and, and his young family, you're you're traveling every single week. You and Tina have kids. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the dynamic of how you're trying to balance this juggling act of growing this business being on the road every week and and four young children and and away from home and 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 how you make that make that work
0: you bet um so my first child was bo- samantha was born in 92 and my last child max was built in 2000 so that period of time is when we had the four kids and ultimately my tina is is an amazing person she's got two master's degrees one in marketing one in uh, catholic teachings a great great lady and and had a great job but ultimately we sat down and had to talk about what's best for our family what career path we want to follow and we decided it would be best for me to continue to pursue this and her to quit work and stay at home Um, and that's what allowed me to do my job it allowed me to travel because i knew the home was so secure with her there Um, and i would do everything i could as i know joe we've talked about it to get home for every game for every piano recital for whatever
2: you could you would I flew to Italy and back once. Yeah you, yeah, you told a great story, and that takes it to the extreme. I might go to Dallas and back in the same day, but you flew to Italy and back in the same day. I mean, you day. can't
0: do it in one day, but it was a continuous trip. I was on the <laughs> ground for
2: you know, whatever it was, six hours, and then, and then back home or back
0: flying home because you do what you can to, to be there for everything you can be. Uh, it wasn't easy. I missed a lot of things. Uh, as I said, my wife did an amazing job of carrying us through it. Um, it's fun to be on the other side of that
2: now um, yeah. and, and be more available. Right. During that time, um, you mentioned, you know, you work with associations. In 93, 94, you get introduced to AICC. Is that, is that, <laughs> is that how you got I involved? think that's a
0: great story, and I, I don't tell it because this is an AICC podcast. I think it's just hilarious. So I, I didn't want to go to AICC. I didn't know what it was. I was busy traveling, and I didn't need one more trip, and it was in Vegas. I don't know the year. I'm sure you could look it up, but you had a in fairly early 90s. You had one of your uh, uh, spring meetings in Vegas, and my boss at the time was Norm Bogar of United. And he insisted I go. So I go to the meeting reluctantly, not sure what you even do there and how I'm gonna spend my time. And I get invited to lunch um, by Joe Burkham, who was their vice president of sales at that time. And he's gonna be having lunch with Marvin Grossbart, who was the owner of President's Container and his wife. And uh, so I go there not knowing them, we sit down, we're by the poolside, we're having this nice lunch. You know, I'm really not part of the conversation because Joe and Marvin known each other for years. And all of a sudden Joe starts having this allergic reaction. And he starts having a little bit trouble breathing and he's realizing he probably ate something he's allergic to so he has to excuse himself to go back to the room and uh, maybe take drink some water take some medicine see what he can do to help himself out and i'm stuck at this pool with marvin grossbard and his wife he's since passed but he has turned out to be one of my favorite people in the industry uh we're still very close with his son larry maybe some of you know marvin but uh he was an interesting character so we're sitting there and he's looking at this I don't know what I am at that point, 27-year-old little <laughs> WAP boy. And I say that because he very quickly nicknamed me a WAP boy. <laughs> and uh, all the way through, you know, his last years, that was my name when I would go visit him even after he was out of work and I would still meet him at restaurants for lunch. So I end up making this friendship just out of this haphazard experience. And, and he ultimately
2: buys from Phosphor and eventually they build a plant and it's all Phosphor. And it was all relationship-oriented. Last night I heard you talking with Mike at dinner and about relationships and people buy from people. that they they like being In this
0: this industry, more than most, people do buy from people. I mean, this is a product that marries you together. Again, I sell machinery. It may not be true as much on the converting side, I don't know, or I should say that, you know, selling boxes, but you're tied at the hip once you buy something from Phosphorus. So you have to trust and believe and and get along. And I think it's it's very critical. We end up friends. I mean, we truly are
1: friends. It's a testament to a a lot of the Suppliers in, in AICC. When you look around the room at, at who we just were on the heels of a spring meeting, and the the guys like like Jeff, that have, have been around 30 years, that are that are still uh, respected and admired for for the way they they walk the talk and do what they need to do to make sure people are ultimately happy with their with their product and it's just a great landscape because you you do look out there and, and whether it's the associates meeting or or in a cocktail party and and, and its a group of guys that have been around for well north of 20 years that have spent a career um, making sure that their good name was attached with a product and service that people could rely on and and I think that AICC uh, you do business with people you like because you know that they will also go to bat and and go to the end of the road to take care of you you tip your hat to your dad and and the way he kind of showed you this extreme service model but so many people just want to sit around and claim that uh, well it's it's just great service but you know to be around and it's a testament to what you've created and in you know, obviously, we've got, we've got more to talk about with Fosper, but one, one of your employees um, had a really nice quote about you that you, you've single handedly uh, taken Fosper from a bunch of knuckleheads to a world class organization. And it's, it's a testament. I, I did ask if, if that was a play on words, and, and, and he said, of course it is. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know if you want to take a stab at who that might have been. That well, first of all, it takes a knucklehead to lead
2: knuckleheads.
0: <laughs> 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 I mean, we are all overachievers every one of us is definitely over cheese i mean i i get occasionally asked by my kids when they call in their new jobs do you ever feel like you're in over your head i said this to this day yeah i mean if i believe that every day when you're driving to work i mean if you're thinking about what's ahead and you feel completely confident and you know that you're just going to get through it that's probably the day you're going to fail you have to be questioning yourself at all times um, because our competitors are exceptional our industry is not easy um, and and employees deserve your best. So ultimately, we are a bunch of knuckleheads, and we, we work our tail off, and when we make a mistake, we
1: admit it, and we change it. So, you... so which one said it? I got about seven to come to mind. There you go. That's <laughs> all I wanted to hear. You know, Joe touched on at the beginning what you have a, a, above your office, and, and with the advent of Zoom and all this pandemic, obviously a lot of people have a, have had a chance to see that. But I think when, uh, you know, just talking in our pre-screen and, and last night at dinner, kind of an interesting story came up with respect to how you're recruiting employees, and, and, and I'm, I'm certain, as I sit here, this is not a new invention that you created in order for you to be the last uh, person that every prospective employee uh, speaks to, but I, I think it really speaks to your level of competitiveness, uh, kind of what you just said about being an overachiever and, and uh, obviously coming up through, through sports. Can you talk a little bit about what you told us last night? With respect to recruiting talent and your your level of involvement there and, and why you feel so passionately about it, you bet. I mean, if you look at Indeed and Facebook or any of the places like all companies that we're advertising,
0: it, we mention it that our that our president interviews every single person because we're proud of that. That's something we believe says that we care about you. We're hiring you for a lifetime lifelong position. So to me, it's very important. You've heard me say culture and extreme service model and the things that I adamantly believe in and. I think it's important that we're honest with the people we're interviewing to let them know what our expectations are, what our model is, and see if that's something they want to buy into. Um, It's important right up front for me to be able to share that in them in return to get a chance to meet me. And and, uh, ultimately, it's supposed to be, I believe, when you enter into hiring someone, you're hiring them for life. I mean, we don't hire someone with the intent to lay them off in a couple years or see how it works and let them go. We truly try to hire them with the belief that they will retire there. And we tell them that. And I tell them that. But I also follow up with telling them this is our model, this is how we operate, this is how you can succeed here. It's not for everybody. And if this isn't for you, it's important you hear it from me because you won't succeed here if, if this isn't something you buy into. We will whack you. By the way, I'm apparently an HR nightmare because you're not supposed to use the word whack. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but in Pittsburgh, we use it pretty often. Yeah. So. There's so, three Italians in a room. No, you, talking can't like, you can't I go, say what whack. What word <laughs> do you want me to say? Fire? I don't know. Whatever. But
1: you also you also kind of get in a little bit in, in kind of a very transparent way, kind of ABC a, players in the business Absolutely. with these prospective employees. So we tell them
0: that. I know we're all lower on the bar these days and desperate for employees, but I don't believe that's the way to, uh, to attract uh, new employees. I think that for, first and foremost, we need to protect and honor the people that already work there. And we, we built a winning team, and we owe it to them to continue to be winners and to try and find uh, additional talent to be on the team at that level. So we're honest with them and say, you know, around here, we don't keep C players. Uh, if you're a C player, we're going to let you know that. We're going to be honest with you. We're going to help you with whatever additional training you want. But as long as you're progressing... We're in, but if you think you're gonna keep your head down and get by here by just showing up for work and being a C player, there's no way. You'll stick out like a sore thumb and you'll be gone. And uh, anybody we let go, I'm part of because I, I feel as bad as anyone else. I wanna be part of the hiring and the firing process because ultimately it is a family and we should be doing it together. If you're a B player, again, we're still coaching you. We want, we want you to succeed. We want you to be the next president of the company. We want you to at least dream for that. We want you to make more money. I think that's what attracts people to work at FOSPER we're all looking for talent right now but i think if you have a desirable place to work people want to come there and they'll tell their families about it they'll tell their close so- circles so many of our new talent workers come from leveraging the people who already work there telling people about how great of a company it is to work for and then people want to work there again we're blessed to be in northeast wisconsin a little bit different
2: environment than a lot of the U.S., but even it's competitive there as well. And, and what are what are their reactions when they when they talk to you and you're blunt like that to their face? Some don't come back. Yeah. Some of the interview
0: process, they call back and say not interested. And I think that's best for both of us. But the good ones are probably fired up. Fired up, uh, absolutely fired up. And and you know, I also follow through with what I said. Obviously, I meet with them. I do orientation for every employee. I give them all the history I just gave you. Every employee gets a book, gets the entire history of the company, and knows what I know, so that they can hopefully be excited about that journey as well and understand why we are where we are today. But also understand we talk a lot about our competition. We have very good competitors. I have a lot of respect for them and we talk about that and the importance of staying on the leading edge because
2: they're right there with us. Yeah, listening to you talk about it last night, I said jokingly I was ready to run through the wall for you. <laughs> and uh, I can only imagine some of the people that have worked for you for years obviously feel the same way and your energy and passion towards that business.
0: I think if you do it right, they have they end up Providing that speech, and you can stop talking so much because I think right now all the key managers at Fosber are exceptional leaders and really like what they do and believe in the mission, and they sell it. Um, I help where I can, but they they really do a great job of going out and selling it.
1: We're at thirty million in sales back in the in the early nineties, and and there's going to be another shift, but but I'm I'm just intrigued, and and maybe this is something I should have teed up. The uh, the podcast with, but what what's impressive to me in, in all the time that I've known you, I've obviously I've I've worked with you on on the business side as well. Uh, we do have a phosphor corrugator in in one of our plants. Is just this dynamic of uh, you are not an owner, you're an employee, um, but you don't you don't act like one, you don't think like one, and I feel like it's just woven into the fabric of who you are. How do you operate in that? in that space and and behave the way you do. I mean, what, what really, what's your philosophy? What drives you there?
0: I am not an owner, never have been. That's not for lack of trying. I would love to be part or full owner of Foster America, but ultimately I do feel like it is my company and I do treat it like it's my company. Uh, the way we spend the money, the way that we make decisions, um, the passion of getting up every morning and going after it. it and that's just, I think, who I am and, and I, Gene I think that's who you are. I think that's how we would work in any
2: industry we're in. Some people just have that drive and I believe that's where it comes from. I, I, and you said the same thing about your employees. You treat them like your own family. And
0: absolutely. Like I mean take very seriously that you know you want them to have a, a high quality of life and a continued opportunity to progress in that quality of life so you do everything you can to again create. We say a lot of the same things over and over but create an environment where they can excel. Give them a chance to use whatever skill sets they have to continue to better themselves um, and make more money, because that's what we're all ultimately trying to do here.
1: Is there a process where someone at, at Fosper comes to maybe their direct manager, or they, they stop by the, the Polini candy jar, and, and, <laughs> and they say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm interested in, in learning X. Uh, do you guys, you, you talk about creating that environment. How do, you, how do you walk the talk again? How do you set them up? How do you practically foster that, that development for people?
0: If you look at the structure of our company right now, the the five vice presidents and then ultimately the the various managers, you'll see people that generally came from inside and in most cases are, like myself, an overachiever. Take the guy that runs our operations, Chris Gibson. Uh, He was one of the best technicians I've ever worked with, also speaks Italian, grew up through the ranks and slowly earned uh, the opportunity to run the service group and then eventually got involved in production, installations and at the moment runs that full operation. He continued his schooling, like a lot of us he goes and gets help. at different uh, seminars and webinars, but he earned it, uh, and he has the respect of the employees because of that, that journey he made. Same thing with Paul Robeski, who's our Vice President of Sales, the guy that runs um, our spare parts and Tarunia Corrugator Rolls Division, also a technician. Most of these, these gentlemen have two-year technical degrees, and they learned over time through the business, you know, not only the culture we have, but how to manage people. We spend a lot of time and money on that, trying to help them further their education. So the walk in the walk is when you look at the organization and there's a lot of tenure there and there's a lot of people uh, like myself that are in positions that, you know, they have to work really hard to be successful because they're not, it doesn't come natural. Yeah. And
1: they weren't uh, educated for that position. You, you guys have a work hard, play hard kind of mentality. I, I, I think it's um, sure. as hard as you guys hustle. Uh, I heard an interesting Chris Gibson story too. Um, you guys obviously go to. Green Bay Packer games. We do quite quite often, and and I think it was uh, Paul and his wife Holly, <laughs> and uh, you and Chris. Could could you maybe share, back to wrestling again? Could huh? you Share that story <laughs> with us. You, Apparently,
0: you, uh, they like to talk about the yeah, uh, the wrestling it, it, and the fighting. It, it, it pops up you get a, little every now. You get pops a little spark. spark he does. In your got, he, he does get a little,
1: <laughs> got a, got a little. fight. So it was to this,
0: him. it was a snowy day. We're walking. Basically, it was after the game. Paul and his wife Holly were walking to their car. Chris is next to me, and Chris says, "Let's go tackle Paul in the snow." <laughs> Paul's a tough nugget but you know we decided we could make it happen so Chris jumps on his back to tackle him in the snow. Holly has no idea what's happening here. Paul swings around to get Chris off and his elbow catches me right in the tip of the nose. Pretty much pushes it two inches to the right so I can sneeze over my shoulder. It's bleeding like a sliv and I got to go home now and explain to my wife what just happened. None of which she's going to believe. And that's that's three VPs
1: getting into a fight after a Packer game at three o'clock on a Sunday what, afternoon. The funniest part that Paul told me that made him laugh so hard, and Holly was in the car and she's laughing as well. He's like, uh, "You guys want to come in for a drink?" <laughs> and they're like, uh, "No."
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tina's not going to want us coming in right now. That's an absolute true story. Somebody probably has
2: a photo of that. Well, we talk oh. we talk a lot about your leadership and who you've become, and and uh, I assume you know you talked about your dad maybe being a mentor and somebody that you look up to, you know, what other people can you point to in your career that that you either learned from or learned what not to do uh, from?
0: I uh, gave this some thought because I thought you guys may ask this. Uh, One of the owners of Phosphor was a guy named Carlos Silvestri. Um, He was my mentor from that perspective. He just was very charismatic, very even-tempered, very opposite of me, but helped me with some of those skill sets I didn't have on, you know, how to be more patient and how to... um, say nothing and still say a lot and, and so somebody that he's since passed but was definitely a mentor sat in a lot of meetings with him uh, a lot of them international we travel a lot together so he was he was definitely someone i would say also a lot of the employees there because honestly we have a lot of really smart people i am surrounded by a lot of rock stars and i learn from them by watching what they do and then you know emulate that some of them are teaching me as we go to be very frank and then there's the ones you learn from that uh yeah you don't what, have to name they're not names. what to yeah. do yeah you know i, I we are extremely transparent with our employees. Very honest, uh, all throughout the pandemic and now in the situation we're in with supply chain shortages and congestions at the port and bookings out so far. We're very honest with everybody. We have a, a monthly meeting. We go through all the financials. We go through the backlog. We explain what's going well, what's not going well. We'll answer any Q&A. Uh, we have an anonymous email system that allows them to tell me what they really think. That help, and I have no way to reply to it, but it's it's great feedback most of the time. Yeah. So I think mentoring doesn't always have to be a person. Sometimes it could be a process. If you lay it out
2: there, your employees will—they'll really help you learn a lot. But you have to be listening. Yeah. I think I know you well enough to know your answer here. But regrets throughout your career—there, some things that you would do differently if you were to do it all over again.
0: I really don't have any regrets. Um, my accident—I don't regret. It was something that was meant to be. I think it was God trying to get a hold of me and get my attention. And not being able to own the company—there's a reason for that. Maybe I'm—you know—not supposed to.
2: Did your perspective change? After your accident, on life? Quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit. Because, you know, at that point, everything
0: that seemed important became unimportant. Mm. And the people that really mattered, like my wife Tina and some close friends and my family, were there for me. And it puts a lot in perspective. And most importantly, the, the people that I shared the hospital bed with. Those folks were really in for a battle. And I hadn't experienced that. You're a young guy. You're invincible. Yeah. You don't know anybody that's dying. You're not around that. So, yeah, it helped, it helped me a
1: lot uh, change my perspective in a positive way. So we got to go back. We're at $30 million and United starts to hit a couple of speed bumps, and uh, you guys are growing like like a weed at, at this point. Tell us about what starts to transpire.
0: So at that point, the ownership group and Fosperly and Carl Landegger had to decide if they were going to remain partners or if they were going to split, um, because we were working well together, but we had different visions and um, we were doing very well financially as a company, so we, we had to decide who we wanted to be. and Our ownership group and myself decided to buy back
1: the 50% shares of Fosber America and become independent again. What year was that? 1999. You've grown aggressively. Does, does your uh, offering change at all in, in kind of right after that 99 or does it start to, is, it really sounds to me like you have a very big voice back to Fosper Italy about the direction of the business, kind of you, you alluded to that even at the beginning about the way the independents thought and, and kind of the market dynamics. So now it's 99 and you decided to do this and, and become a wholly owned. Um, in America again, what are you, what's kind of the vision? and What are you communicating?
0: Well, your voice is as big as a dividend check you send them (laughs) annually. So as long as you're making money and sending a dividend check, your voice matters. Fortunately, we were doing that. But ultimately, we actually took a step back when we separated from United and bought the company 100% because we didn't have a wet end any longer. So we no longer could, could compete on the projects that required wet end as well. and We knew that short-term that'd be a bit of a bump, but we knew that long-term that was, was was best for us. So we began the process immediately of developing the wet end, first looking for a partner. Right around then Langston went bankrupt, so we looked at buying the drawings and maybe uh, u- utilizing their technology. We were in conversations with some other major uh, machinery suppliers from Japan and one from Europe, but ultimately none of that panned out and we decided to do it ourselves. So there was a period of time when we only had the dry end, not the wet end. Struggled a little bit to have any substantial growth because we weren't able to compete, as I mentioned, on those projects. But by 2002, we had the first wet end ready to go. Who buys it? Uh, Green Mitt Packaging Coon Rapids. Interesting. Yeah. And then the first complete corrugator was 2004, which was Miller container in the Quad Cities, now uh, LDI. Yep. That was our first full corrugator. And then it just went straight up. After that, the curve became even greater than before. And we were able to really uh, compete in, in, in all projects uh, very successfully. and we. I mean, we're presently at about 150 million in sales. So, incredible. And a fun ride.
1: I think back to the story you've told us today about uh, Philip Goldstein and his obvious communications with Jordan. Um, You you know, Miller, this this full corrugator goes in. Um, Does it really just explode and it's word of mouth? And is it a marriage of this quality of the product line with this extreme service model? Is there anything you attribute it to?
0: I honestly think a lot of people were rooting for us because we were doing a pretty good job on the dry end and we had that model that they appreciated as far as not only technology but the the service piece I talk about and on the wet end it was a journey because the wet end is a completely different technology. It's honestly much more challenging. The dry end is very uh, software and electronic oriented and the wet end is process. So you have a lot of variables you can't control. Which include, you know, steam, starch, air, all the different variables that ultimately make it more challenging on the wet end. So I think a lot of people are rooting for us, and we were able to get close with some of the major integrateds early, so we can get multiple orders, and uh, and
1: earned our way. It's fitting that that the first um, first dry ends and independent, first full corrugators and independent, you, you know, <laughs> first wet end, sole wet end, independent. I mean. Just very, very interesting.
0: I think they're willing, you know, to look at the technology, um, look at the relationship, take some risks together, and and you know, you had to believe in one another, and then didn't always go well. We just had to be there for them, upgrade the machine, continue to make it work, uh, and and then turn that into other opportunities. So, that's what makes the independent special industry. They're truly entrepreneurial, and they're they're willing to do some things others won't do, which gives a company, a smaller company, a chance.
1: You know, uh, Tim Ferriss always says, um, you know, if there was a billboard. Out, out front of the office, everybody was going to drive by it on the highway. You know what? What would you put up on that billboard? What? What's kind of your your billboard message that you would you would give to people?
0: Great question. After Go Pack Go, which would probably be my first choice, <laughs> I probably would put something about Come check us out at Fosper. We're a culture worth believing in, or something of that nature. I'm not real quick with words. I'd work with Mary or one of our marketing people, to yeah. make that sound good. But the message would be Come take a look. If you tour our facility, I know Gene, you had a chance to do that this past year. It it just resonates. Everything we do there resonates that it's a fun place to work
2: and that somewhere you just might want to really be part of. To grow from zero to 150 million and employee number one to 170, right now. 170 employees, the culture has to be right. And yes. clearly you've made good decisions and you've led in a manner that attracts people. And that's an incredible thing to do in this, especially today, in today's day and age.
1: Thank you. What motivates you? You know, what do you hope to do and accomplish? You know, maybe over the next 20 years, and how do you feel confident that you can leave the company in good hands? What What's next for you? And 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 I'm not saying you're retiring tomorrow. This, <laughs> this uh, not the case. But but I think I think we all kind of this rolls around in our in our brain a little bit. You bet. So I mean, I'm still having fun. I really
0: love what I do, and I love the people I work with. And um, at this point, God willing, I'll continue to work for another five seven years something like that hopefully because we're continuing to grow we recently acquired that company quantum we have a lot of work to do there it opens up some new markets so there's a lot of exciting things still out there but what i enjoy doing right now succession and mentor mentoring of uh, the next group up and we've made a lot of changes paul's going part-time this june uh, he's going to thank goodness continue to be there for us but as a resource more than as the you know the lead salesperson um, our cfo's retiring in a couple years so we're all seeing this this transition and my goal is to leave the company in an amazing place where it goes on better than ever without me. So that
2: and that's exciting. It's challenging yeah. but it's exciting. But the culture's there, so the momentum's there. You said something interesting last night at uh, dinner that I thought was it was pretty incredible to hear. What what is your why and why why are you working? And and your answer was for your family. I mean,
0: that that one's easy for me. That maybe should have been the billboard because ultimately I, I do do this for my family. I love my family. I think that's why we're here. I think we're here to uh, provide an environment for our family to excel and to be able to go on and continue the th- the wonderful things hopefully that we were able to do. Yeah, that, that was the whole reason that I did what I do. Now I'm doing it hopefully so that others that work there can do that for their family, uh, that they have the opportunity to do the same because you you can make a decent living in this industry. It's fun when we get around at the ICC events and you know have a beer here and there we all start complaining about something but at the end of the day we're all doing pretty darn good and it's a great industry it's it's everywhere it's sustainable it's full of great people and you can really raise a great family with the help of a career in this industry
1: you're in your office tomorrow and a 22 year old you sitting across from you as a prospective employee and what words of advice do you have i mean and counsel if uh, if you really had to had to get you know, get naked, as they say, and speak from the heart.
0: Well, I I have four kids, so I do occasionally have this conversation. (laughs) And, uh, you know, what I tell them is it really depends on what your objectives are, but you have to do the next thing. Uh, The landscape has changed to your point, Gene. So many people right now are changing jobs, looking for some quick instant gratification, you know, a solution within a year, within two years. They want this path laid out for them. If you find a good industry and you find a good company and you just do the next thing, always with your best effort, competitively but honestly, You'll be rewarded it may not be at that company hopefully it will be but you'll find yourself five years later in a role you could have never dreamed i mean i i just kept doing the next thing i never had this dream to be where i am and uh, it just seemed like you just you would outwork everybody else and you would end up ahead of them because of either impatience or for whatever reason they they found a different career path and that's one of the challenges right now with the youth and i i spend a lot of time um, with the people at fosper that are you know, the next generation to help us hopefully be a continued great company, asking them to to be patient and to do the next thing and to tell us where we can be helpful and to bring your ideas forth. I mean, you saw the remodel we recently did to the whole building. That's their ideas. I wouldn't have picked those colors. And that, what they spent money on, I would have never spent money on, but it was important to them. Yeah. But I also asked them, but stick around here and do the next thing and keep growing. And before you know it, you're going to be running this department or that department. Too many people jump, move around and they find themselves 10 years in no, no better off. Yeah. Now there are people far more intelligent than me that have a different career path and
1: get there. Mine was outworking other people. There's a couple of things that resonate to me in your message and, and just your story. And one is really that there's good people all over the place. Uh, they, they may or may not fit in your culture. It doesn't make them a bad person. Not at all. No. It just, just makes them not a fit for, for the organization and what you've created. And, and I think that that's an important piece of the puzzle, but a lot of times just in the way my career has developed, people ask me, you know, what I do for, for work, and my answer usually is I'm, I'm two more arms to carry heavy buckets of water. It's kind of another way of saying what you just said, and that's just do the next thing. And, and I think that when, when ownership, when, when executive management knows that you're someone that, that can be relied upon, that uh, your decision-making can be trusted, and your work ethic is, is indisputable, more water is put into those buckets. And, and I like your message of, of just be patient. Good things will happen.
0: And when you're wrong, admit it and change it. That's it. I mean, that's, that's easy. it's easy to fix it if you just make the admission of that it wasn't, that was a bad decision. I mean, right. I have a couple deviled advocates. Uh, one of us is our CFO, Jeannie, and her favorite thing is to come in and tell me what a dumb idea that was. She's usually right. We usually change it and we move on. But somebody to have, had to tell me that. Because otherwise, I was pretty sure it was a great idea.
2: I think as we wrap this up, When you speak, there's always value. And just hearing your story and the competitive edge that you have and your leadership. Methods. No wonder you're successful. It's a very incredible story. And the last thing I would say is you're kind to the people that you come across. And and I can speak to it briefly. We don't work together. You know, you know I don't buy from you. And I asked you. I'm willing you what, to sell you. Yeah, you know, know. I'm sure you would. But I, I asked you one time about Italy, and we were going to take a trip with my family. Oh, right. And right. you took two hours out of your time to explain. Here's where you got to go. Here's where you want to. What you want to see. Here's how you're going to do it. And to me, uh, that kind of just sums up who you are as a person. And from, you know, from my point of view, it's uh, it's pretty incredible to be just to be around you. Well, thank you. I mean, it all comes full circle, right? I mean,
0: the, the kind of things you do generally come full circle, if not even to you, to somebody. When you pay it forward, somebody ultimately benefits from that. So I think it's really cool that way that we have like emerging leaders and the things we're doing with the youth that come in and now are immediately given access to people and given the opportunity to get Conversation with two gentlemen like you, I think it's awesome.
1: We uh, greatly appreciate it and appreciate your time. And you can learn more at fosper.com. You know, Fosper has done quite a bit for AICC. Uh, it, it's very impactful. if think if you're in the Green Bay area, stop by Fosper, uh, meet some of the people, meet some of Jeff's team. Uh, they they truly do have a unique culture and uh, it'll definitely be worth your while. So we really appreciate your time. We welcome
0: anybody, and we got the
2: best espresso in all of Green Bay. I promise you that. (laughs) You do.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Breaking down boxes.
2: New shows will drop the first Monday of every month.
1: Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.